state and local government is responsible for 50 to 75% of our Paris climate goals. 50 to 75% is all state and local. But every time you turn on the news, what you hear is federal, federal, federal all the time. The federal government is obviously very important for solving the climate crisis, but state and local is going largely unnoticed. Hello and greetings from Tallahassee, Florida. I'm Julia Piper, your host of Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. On the line with me today is Shane Skelton, an advisor on energy, climate, infrastructure, and environmental policy at Boundary Stone Partners. Hello, Shane. How are you today? Hi, Julia. I'm doing good. I'm doing well, I should say. I'm excited for this. I as you probably know, just from our conversations, I know nothing about state policy. For all the time I spend in energy policy and public policy, I don't track state elections or state policy. So I'm really excited for today's discussion. I'm excited to hear from Caroline. I'm excited to get ramped up here. Also with us, as you indicated, there is Caroline Spears. She is the executive director of Climate Cabinet Action. And this is her second time joining us on the Political Climate Podcast. Hello, Caroline. How are you? Hi, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Brandon Hurlbut, our our other co-host, could not be here today, and I know he's disappointed. I know he's talked to you in the past, Caroline. He cannot make it today, but we're excited to jump in and hear more about what you're working on and appreciate you joining us. So for some background, a lot of our collective attention has been focused on Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, state legislatures around the country have a huge impact, are in charge of passing all kinds of laws implementing climate and energy policy. While local and state races and most state-level voting records go unnoticed, they are hugely consequential. And frankly, we need to be paying more attention to them if we want to see a lot of our climate goals be realized. So that's where Climate Cabinet Action comes in. They support candidates in their climate planning and communication strategies, making it easier to embrace climate as a priority. They've done this for three campaign cycles, including 2018 state legislature races, 2019 presidential primaries, and the 2020 state and congressional races, where they worked with 100 campaigns across the country. Recently, they also published the Climate Cabinet Scorecard, which is one of the reasons we're talking to Caroline today. It's the first national tool to hold state legislatures accountable for their climate votes. It's designed to bring transparency to climate votes and build momentum for bold climate action everywhere. So, Caroline, thanks for coming on. Uh, Did I get that introduction right? For those who may not know among our listeners, how would you describe Climate Cabinet? And could you give us the 101? Thanks, Julia. Yeah, great description. I'm so excited to be here. Climate Cabinet exists to help candidates run, win, and legislate on the climate crisis. And we do this with candidate engagement, and we do this with accountability and a climate slate. So we know from research by NREL and Bloomberg Philanthropies that state and local government is responsible for 50 to 75% of our Paris climate goals. 50 to 75% is all state and local. But every time you turn on the news, what you hear is federal, federal, federal all the time. The federal government is obviously very important for solving the climate crisis. But state and local is going largely unnoticed, even though they have at least half of the impact. So that's why we focus on state and local, because they have incredible climate impact, but they're chronically overlooked. So yeah, we help down-ballot candidates run when and say on climate change. We have the largest database of political opportunity and climate action in the country. And we use that to find, elevate, and resource incredible candidates that have a very high climate ROI. So that's what we do. Can you actually elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, when you look at federal elections, the pool, I mean, it's still big. There's several Americans, but you kind of know, you know, who's in the market for it. There's either people that have, you know, started to run campaigns or 
there's local legislators, state legislators. You can get a pretty good sense of who might be a viable candidate or who might even want to be a candidate. How do you begin your work when you're looking at folks to run for state and local office? Absolutely. So we have a three-step process. The first step is we look at which state legislature chambers are important for climate action. We're right on that edge if they could be important for climate action. If we just had a few more seats, if we just had a majority of pro-climate legislators in that state. So that's the first thing we look at is which states should we be in. The second thing we do is we run our own PVI analysis. We have an internal data team that looks at, even in a redistricting year, what are the seats that are in play, both in the primary and in the general election for the states that we care about that cycle. And the third step is we talk to local groups, see what's happening on the ground, and we actually run an endorsement process and a slate process for candidates that we think are incredible on climate but getting overlooked. So how do you pick... I guess, how do you find those individuals? Do they come to you? I know you sort of described it there, but how do you know that they're good on these issues? What are the metrics you use, I guess, to assess that? Yeah, we use climate scores. And climate scores are very simple. They're just, what percentage of the time does this person vote pro-climate when a pro-climate bill comes up for a vote? So we don't look at their statements. We don't care about what they said publicly. We say, show me the climate votes that they took this last legislative cycle, and how did they vote? And how how granular is that? Because I I look at several bills like Build Back Better. We could say there's a trillion dollars of climate spending. We could say there's $200 billion of climate spending. We could say there's 50 billion. But you have to sort of decide what is a climate provision and then what is a provision that might have a climate impact? How do you measure those metrics and, and how are you, you know, how do you get granular about what you consider a climate vote? Yeah, well, unlike some of the massive federal spending packages that are being passed at the federal level where you have to go through budget reconciliation. In a lot of state legislatures, it's it's a lot easier to tell, to be honest. There's obviously a budget provision that goes through that you're right, is very complicated to figure out. But this is what we mean by climate vote. It can range from something like a bill to streamline solar permitting for folks who want to put solar on their roof or folks who want to put solar on the ground. Or it can be, hey, when a climate disaster hits, how are you spending that money? Are you spending it in a way that will help this community build back better, actually helping racial and social inequities that we see, and building back in a way that makes that community actually more climate resilient? Or are you spending those climate disaster dollars in a way that increases existing inequities and actually makes communities less able to prepare for the next climate disaster? So those are two examples of of climate votes that, that we look at. So I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm in Tallahassee, which is the state capital of Florida, um, here working on distributed solar policy, which is really exciting. And there's a lot happening here. This is a major state. It's the sunshine state, as a lot of people would point out. And I guess what I've learned, though, having gone from a decade in journalism to now working on policy is, you know, maybe this is something Shane could speak to, too. But A lot of things aren't billed as climate. They are just bills that are working their way through the legislature. And sometimes they're part of a business plan or strategy, or maybe it's tax, or maybe it is actually clean energy focused, but it's not called climate per se. And you really do see lawmakers from all across the aisle working on these issues in a way that I probably didn't appreciate before for lots of different reasons, just because there's businesses and jobs in their district, for instance, and they maybe aren't thinking about it through a climate lens whatsoever. Nonetheless, that industry does help us reduce our emissions. So I'm wondering how you would capture something like that, particularly we think about Democrats and more so even Republicans who are not maybe campaigning on climate or making it core to their platform, but are nonetheless forwarding policies that would help us meet our climate goals. Here's what we're seeing in state legislatures across the country exactly on that issue. And Shane, I want to get your feedback on this once I say it, because I have a feeling you'll have some 
might have some objections to this framing. So let's do it. Uh-oh. This will be fun. <laughs> All right. So sure, we're going to score a bill that says, let's think of climate resilience. This is the climate plan for the state of Colorado. Of course, we're going to score that. We're also going to score a bill that never says the word climate at all and helps people build back from disastrous climate-induced flooding. But they don't have to call it climate-induced for us to know that this is flooding that people have to build back from. Mm. What if it's a a bill that helps utility-scale solar? You don't need to use the word climate for us to be like, great, that's a climate vote. We're going to score that. So what we did is we looked at the voting records of 3,300 state legislators in 25 states across the country. And we found, when you look at that metric, again, we're not just looking at the bills that have the word climate in it. Who who gets an A+, who has a 90 or above climate score? We have over 1,000 Democratic state legislators in that bucket, and we have nine Republicans. So if you want to know who the Republicans are, who are good on climate, I'll tell you, a lot of them are climate deniers, but we're still giving them an over 90 because they're voting well on the issues, but there's nine of them compared to 1,000 on the other side of the aisle. So- I guess technically there's bipartisanship. Yeah, I mean... What about not A pluses? What about like Bs? It's not a normal distribution. It's a a bimodal distribution. So you have a lot of folks who are great and a lot of folks who are terrible. And I got to be honest with you, there's not a lot of people in the middle. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Before green hydrogen was the topic du jour, before every energy analyst was debating the next two quarters of storage cost declines, the Fish Tank team was entrenched in the clean tech and sustainability sector. Fish Tank brings together industry expertise and a love for storytelling. They're dedicated to putting in the time on media outreach to deliver your company meaningful transactional coverage. Whether your organization is scaling as you go for your Series B or expanding globally and reaching new customers and partners, find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. That's interesting because I, you know, I think about this all the time, as you can imagine, both for work and just in my personal life. And I... I think there's a couple different ways. You mentioned resilience or building back several times. And that is something that, at least at the federal level, I've seen be incredibly bipartisan, if not led you know, by Republicans, because when you think of coastal states and areas that are having trouble with natural disasters, you know, as you mentioned, they don't say, hey, here's my climate resilience bill. How, who wants to sign on? But it's you know, coastal resilience or it's you know, wildfire suppression or, or, or mitigation or, or whatever. And those bills are almost always like introduced by, you know, two Republican senators and two Democratic senators or something like that. And then there's the other, you know, what we haven't really touched on, but is like the innovation portfolio. So the question is, like, does one consider carbon capture and storage climate? Does one consider hydrogen, for example, hydrogen production, which is becoming more popular, I think, in states uh, and at the federal level? Is that climate? There's not a ton of gray, as you know, but I I do know that if ever, you know, you circulated uh, Capitol Hill with a climate bill, and said, I want as many Republicans on this climate bill as possible, you probably aren't going to do very well. 
but there are issues that we can zero in on. And sometimes it's actually competitiveness in manufacturing. We don't want China making these things. We want to make them here. You can get a little support there. So I, I don't doubt at all that the numbers are definitely skewed Democrat, but I do think I think it's great, by the way, that you're capturing policies that help solve a problem rather than, you know, what they're named and titled. I think it's a bummer that the numbers are as as, um, as lopsided as you said. But my hope is that my hope has been for years and, and hasn't been fully recognized that we're going to see more of that. And I do think escalating tensions with China, which, you know, have a lot of downside, are going to really advance discourse and dialogue on some of the domestic manufacturing and some of the innovation that we need here. And that'll be clean energy technology, and it'll be stuff that has nothing to do with clean energy. But I think hopefully that'll help sort of unify uh, at least regionally politicians, regardless of their of their political party, towards better outcomes, even if those outcomes are, are painted as jobs and, and GDP growth and, and fewer imports and national security and all that stuff. Yeah, I share that hope for the future. And that's why we have this you know, we have a live tracking system where we're actively, after each session is closing, tracking how folks are voting on it. And we'll watch that number of Republicans scoring above 90, and I hope it increases. But I think a commitment to a lot of, look, I grew up in Houston. You know what Houston has a lot of folks who are really great at? Oil and gas. Oil and gas wells, offshore drilling platforms. Guess who has all of the patents for offshore wind? Europe. So we have had that need for innovation and a need for forward-thinking state leadership for decades. And I think we've seen a lack of ability for state lawmakers, especially state lawmakers on the Republican side of the aisle, to see that as a domestic manufacturing ability, to see that as an exciting business opportunity. Um, One of the states that has many wind turbine manufacturing areas is Wisconsin. That's great. Wisconsin has some of the worst climate laws on the books. So you know what those wind manufacturers do in Wisconsin? They export their wind turbines to Minnesota and to Iowa and to other states who have much better clean energy policy. So I also wish we lived in a world where like the jobs angle and the innovation angle really made the difference in terms of getting Republican votes for these issues. But we're just not seeing that happen right now at the scale that we need to. Yeah, what I think will be interesting is I think what's not going to change, or at least not in the near future, is that. I don't think Republican, I don't mean anyone who identifies as Republican, but I just mean as a general group, I don't think Republicans will ever sit down and say, climate change is the problem to be addressed. What tools do we have in the toolkit to do that? I think climate solutions from the Republican side will often be uh, co-benefits of whether it's industrial policy or whether it's some other sort of innovative technology that they want to pursue. So hydrogen would be a good example. You know, I think Republicans are going to learn to love hydrogen with carbon capture because you can use sort of existing legacy natural gas resources and create a zero emissions fuel that can power industrial facilities. You can very much see how that would be popular in, you know, the Midwest and other areas where where we've got hollowed out manufacturing bases. Yeah. But I don't think it'll ever be, let's address climate, bring me your 10 best ideas. I don't think Republicans are going to do that. The flip side is where the Republican Party has changed tremendously since I've been working professionally in politics is that there was a very sort of heavy anti-union bent. Free trade was the cornerstone of Republican economic policy, meaning that where it was made was completely irrelevant, right? It was a matter of how do you get the product into the supply chain for the lowest cost possible? Those were tenets of conservative ideology, at least on the economic side. That has changed tremendously in my time working in this field. And I don't think I'm saying anything that people wouldn't admit, you know, flat out. I think you talk to people as high as the Trump White House in those days to leadership in Congress right now, and they will tell you, you need to be more thoughtful about 
domestic manufacturing, union jobs, things like that, that that would have never come up when I started on the Hill. So I, there is some change and some not change, but I, I'm, I, like I said, I'm hopeful because I think what most people would agree with, almost anyone, regardless of you know being super progressive or, or very conservative, is that our country is being hollowed out. And so you know, bringing some of that back home can be meaningful, whether it, it whatever it creates, you know? Yeah. And you know what? Like, it's not to, I think there's a lot of things happening in the Republican Party right now that go beyond climate. And I think that's a, a severe understatement. But what I will say is that the clean energy industry has not shown up in state and local policy, the way that the gas industry does, the way that the car dealerships do when they want to get Tesla out of the market the way that so many other industries do. There is not this realization in the clean energy business community's mind. There's not enough of a realization that state and local, you need to be operating at a state and local level. So I look through, we look through campaign finance donations for all of these thousands of candidates. And yeah, I'm not shocked when Texas passes a, a tax on EVs because some of the biggest political donors in the state of Texas is the Car Dealerships Association. And like, great. You're basically putting like an entire industry. This happened within the American Gas Association. It's anti-electrification legislation. You know what happened in the 19 states that passed anti-electrification legislation in the last two years? The American Gas Association showed up and the electrification folks didn't. So I have a theory on this. I, I want to hear your feedback. Um, and I have no proof or data or okay. anything to back my theory. But I, but I think What's it's up? true. I, I think the clean energy industry came of age in the Obama years. And at that time, you had a very willing federal government and you had the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. So basically, you had several different factors driving clean energy policy at the federal level. And I think because those companies were in their infancy, because unlike gas companies and other companies that have been around for 100 plus years, they didn't invest in the state and local infrastructure that, that I think the gas industry, for example, has been investing in since the late 1800s. And I think they thought, okay, the federal game works. If we lobby here and advocate here, we can get billions of dollars out the door. Why deal with a patchwork of 50 states? We don't really need to deal with it. And then the Obama administration left and the Recovery and Reinvestment Act funds were exhausted. And the Trump administration was in place, had no interest in doing any of this. And I really think they just never built the infrastructure because they didn't know they had to. I think they became mature at a time when it just made sense to go to the federal government because that was just easier and always available. I think that's a really good theory. And I think the other thing that I would add to that is there's a difference between getting your business off the ground and having your business be a full mature industry. And I'm so excited that the solar industry has grown the way it has and the wind industry has grown the way it has. And fighting over the ITC and PTC should happen. It's clearly critically important. But the goal is no longer let's stay alive. The goal is 100% clean energy on the electricity sector. And the goal is 100% electrification. And you have to start changing how you think about policy and politics when you think about that versus like, we're just barely staying alive and employing everybody that we can and we're growing a great amount. But um, it's thinking about staying alive versus thinking about market share. And I think to your point, folks need to start thinking about market share. And I understand why you wouldn't when you're a small company and you're trying to raise your series E or something. I don't know if I, this might also be very wrong as well, but I feel like if you're working on something that you think is bettering the world, you have this core belief that this is just better and it's going to win on its merits. And I think there's kind of a resignation to what it means to play the political game, I guess. And we can talk, actually, let's not talk about money in politics. It's not at all where my experience lies, but I think maybe there's just not an awareness of how that works. And there's a just not a great feeling about getting into that world. 
especially if you feel like you have a product that, again, should win on its merit. So I wonder if that's also just another factor that's prevented people in the climate and clean energy space from getting into the game. Mind you, now the sector has evolved. It is very bipartisan, regardless of what the legislatures are doing. To your point, like we're seeing all kinds of states participate in the clean economy now. Wind is huge in mostly red states. So we are getting to a point where now I think it can just be an industry advocating for itself on purely the business elements. And it's the market share. It's not about where your politics lie. Uh, it's really just about you know showing why this industry should really thrive and grow for broader reasons. But I do think there's some resistance to that in the beginning, at least as the sector was getting going. I mean, just take Nebraska, right? Nebraska Public Power announces they're, the whole state, the three biggest utilities in Nebraska, because it's also Omaha Public Power District, it's going 100% renewable. The Nebraska state legislature right now is trying to take away the public power district's authority to do that. Right. So we're just still not in a place where like people are winning on the merits. The state legislature is freaking out that the state decided to go 100% clean. And they're trying to take that authority away. We have so much preemption happening at the state legislature level. It's kind of destroying the other layers of government that are trying to work towards this future. I think there probably is, as, as you both pointed out, a very concentrated focus on winning on the merits, which really isn't typically how politics works. Right. And then, you know, secondarily, I don't think it's as nefarious as it sounds. Like, I think that comment in a vacuum makes it sound like the dirtiest business in the world, politics. But I, but I actually think, at least in my experience, we think about this all day. This is what we do for a living. But there's so many things going on in the world. Like some people ran for Congress because they're really focused on a dying agriculture sector. Some ran for Congress because some injustice happened at their local middle school and it really got them worked up. There's so many different reasons people run for elected office at any level that they might really have no idea what the merits are. Not that they're dumb or mean spirited. They just genuinely don't know. And I think sometimes we overlook that when we're thinking, why wouldn't you just do the right thing? I don't think people are trying to do the wrong thing necessarily is that there's so many issues. We just work on this one, you know? Totally. I mean, we talk like this is how Climate Cabinet got started. It's someone's like, hey, should I have a climate platform? And I was like, yes, what? <laughs> you don't have a climate platform? Let's write one for you. What does that mean? Like, tell me about your district. What is your district experiencing? I have a degree in this. This is exciting. You know, it's a moment when you finally can use that random class you took once and it actually is useful, which is always nice. But uh, yeah, of course they haven't heard about it. You know, the number of Texas candidates that I talk to who don't know that Texas has a quarter million clean energy jobs, it's like most people I talk to. And these people are smart. They're leaders in their community. And maybe they're an immigration expert or they are a small business owner, people coming from a lot of different walks of life. And to assume that, oh, you haven't been paying attention to the price per kilowatt hour of solar over the past 10 years is we kind of make an absurd ask of a lot of people running for office. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. 
Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fish Tank PR is a public relations and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year. As the cleantech and sustainability sectors have boomed, so has Fish Tank. But unlike many large PR firms, the Fish Tank team has been immersed in cleantech for more than a decade, delivering results for clients ranging from renewable energy producers and software platforms to battery manufacturers and green builders. From PR and digital marketing to content writing, the team at Fish Tank helps you develop a strategy of bringing your work to not only wider audiences, but the right audience. They'll listen and learn about the work you're doing on the ground as part of the climate tech revolution and translate that into visibility and strong narratives for your projects. To learn more about Fish Tank's approach to clean tech and services, go to fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. I do want to get into the climate slate that you put together, Caroline. And so can you tell us a little bit about the new list of candidates that you've looked at? We've kind of understood the process behind it, but are there any themes that jump out to you this year? Are there any states that you're focused on or perhaps any individuals that you think are really stand out on climate? So the climate slate this year represents our top candidates this year, where we feel like every dollar will have the maximum climate impact. And we built this off of our, again, the database of political opportunity and and climate impact and where that overlap really is. So you can think of all of our climate analysis and all of our PVI technology that we've built. And we find outliers in terms of climate impact and outliers in terms of political vulnerability. And that's who makes the slate. So these 12 candidates, and it's 12 candidates for now, we're releasing three slates this year uh, because redistricting and everyone's suing each other. So we had to tier it. So the climate slate, go to climateslate.com. It's a living document. And we'll keep updating that as we get more news on redistricting that's you know just finalized in Minnesota. The Georgia state legislature is trying to redraw the public service commission boundaries right now after one of the pro-climate candidates raised a lot of money. They're trying to draw her out of a district last minute. So that's going on. There's a lot of moving pieces So it just lives on that website and it's going to increase. Our number of cans will increase as we go through. But yeah, high climate impact, low dollar races. And that's who this climate slate is. We have people who are incredible incumbents who are in the state legislature killing anti-electrification bills on points of order at 11.59 p.m. the day before the legislative session closes. We have folks who are climate champions, environmental justice champions in their primary field and it's like on Lily's list for climate. We really want to make sure that they make it through that primary and, and go on to have a successful general campaign. And then, yeah, we have folks who are running some of the toughest races nationally. We have Columbia, Missouri mayoral race. Columbia, Missouri owns a lot of old gas and coal. So we care about that authority of a municipal utility, publicly owned power. There's a wide variety of candidates on there, but those are the big themes. Great incumbents. Great primary challengers, things like that. So what would people do with this list? Is it meant to help guide political donations, I guess? Or what is it? Who's the intended audience? It's folks who want to say, you know what? I have $50 to give to a climate candidate, and I want that to go the farthest. And maybe you don't want to give that to a $100 million U.S. Senate campaign or a $6 billion presidential campaign. Maybe you want to give that to a place where every dollar that you raise is having immediate impact. It's also to highlight candidates who are doing a great job on this issue. And we feel like, you know, 
they should be supported in that effort. And so I guess thinking even beyond that to the next climate slate, kind of bringing this full circle to where we started, what kind of education and even perhaps earlier process do you think could exist to get candidates to be good on climate? Is there some kind of even earlier education? You kind of alluded to it by mentioning platforms that candidates could pull together, sharing the data with them. What does that process look like? Because then there's getting the slate together, electing these individuals. But there's obviously the groundwork that has to happen even before that. There's a lot of great local organizing groups who are doing the groundwork to find candidates and recruit candidates, and it really depends on the area. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of great networks out there finding great people to run for office, from the Emerge Network to your local Sierra Club. There are a lot of groups finding great candidates out there. Well, this has been super enlightening. I think we're sort of burying the lead here, but it is an election year, folks. (laughs) I think it came up quickly. Um, I guess to round us out here... Uh, to either of you, do you have any sort of final thoughts on how you think this election year will go? Is there anything that you have that you're looking out for on climate and energy that you think you'd want people to start thinking about over the course of this year as we head into the fall season? Caroline, and then Shane, I'll give you the last word. I mean, it's 2022. Welcome to midterm election season. There's going to be so much noise this year about the Senate races and the U.S. House races. What I'm looking forward to this year is seeing the incredible state and local candidates who are making a massive climate impact in their communities and who might not be getting the attention that your local Senate candidate is getting. So definitely keep an eye out for folks who are running on great climate platforms in your city, whether that's talking about their excitement to bring in battery manufacturing jobs, how they're going to create energy efficiency homes and create millions of jobs for electricians and HVAC technicians or whether they're going to be a voice for a massive environmental injustice that's happened in their community, like Shingle Mountain, for example. So that's what I'm looking forward to this year. I think we're going to see a lot of noise at the federal level, but there are climate majorities that we can create in 2022, regardless of all of that federal noise. Great. Shane, close us out with your look ahead to the midterms. I'm sure we'll revisit it again this year, but any thoughts coming out of this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to get a lot of a lot of Twitter hate mail after this one, but I actually think this November is going to be an absolute bloodbath, and I think it's going to have nothing to do with climate. It's going to have to do with several other things that we don't need to get into, but I think it's going to be really. So I, I was on Team Boehner um, in 2010 when we picked up 63 seats. I think this will be bigger than that. And so when you ask about climate, I guess what I'm looking at is I think there are a lot of Republicans who will do very cool things on energy and climate. I don't think. There are Republican majorities that will introduce and put those bills on the floor. So what I'm looking for is what happens between November of 2022 and January of 2023. And, you know, do you see Democrats using their ability to control the House and Senate floor and enough Republicans, you know, joining with them to do some meaningful energy and climate work uh, with 60 votes in the Senate and a majority in the House? I know that's probably not a popular answer, but that is what it, it looks like to me from from this seat today. Yeah, state ledge is a lot of the pro-climate majorities are totally on defense this year. So we'll see if we can hang on. Well, for those who want to get involved, as Caroline mentioned, you can go to climatecabinetaction.org. Yeah, that's a great site. If you want to see just our slate, go to climateslate.com. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. We will watch how this all unfolds in the coming weeks and months ahead. So thank you again. And thanks to everyone for tuning into Political Climate. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. You can also subscribe to the Canary Media Newsletter and make sure you get every podcast as it comes out every second Thursday. And thanks to Maria Virginia Alano, our producer of this show, and also Kyle McDonald, our fabulous editor. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks. Until then, signing off. Bye-bye.